0: If you have your Bible today, turn to Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48. Once again, great worship in spite of my guitar playing today. I was hitting a couple of wrong chords. If you heard that I played the wrong chord today, if you'll just keep it to yourself, that would be great. Small faith, great God. Small faith, great God. We're talking today about God's assurances. Have you ever needed to be assured about anything? Have you ever need someone to come alongside to reassure you about anything? There is a huge new trend out today. It's online. It's called a flash mob. Anybody ever hear, ever hear about a flash mob? Raise your hand if you've ever seen or heard about a flash mob, okay? This is going to be a teaching time, I can tell right now. What happens in a normal setting, someone all of a sudden breaks out into song or even dancing. Uh, and, and let me give an example on on YouTube. On November 13th, 2010, in a mall, uh, in, in I believe it was in Oregon, a mall in Oregon. It was just a regular food court in a mall. This girl looks like she's talking on a cell phone, and all of a sudden, the, the opening strains of Handel's Messiah comes on, and the Hallelujah Chorus, and she looks like she's talking on a cell phone, and she starts singing out loud. And all the people who are sitting at this mall, you know, it's, it's right before Christmas time, so they're all, it's, the place is packed with people, and they're looking at this woman. And then when she gets done with the first phrase or two, a man stands on a chair, and he sings the second part of the Hallelujah Chorus. And then other people begin to join in. By the time it's all done, they have 100 people who have practiced the Hallelujah Chorus, and it's called a flash mob. Well, Howie Mandel got, got wind of this. And you know, when, you know who Howie Mandel is? A crazy guy on TV. He came up with a TV show where they use a flash mob to deliver a message to someone, and Kathy and I watched it this last week, and, and there was a guy who wanted to propose to his girlfriend. She was very jealous uh, of him, and, and any time he talked with a, another girl. And so Howie came up with the idea of having 1,000 dancers and singers to propose to this girl for this guy, this flash mob. So he takes her out to this very elegant restaurant, this big deal, and supposedly they're getting a a backstage pass to some really famous people, and they get the little thing around their neck, so they get to go into this very nice restaurant, and she sits down. But Howie decides in his brilliance that he's going to have this actress come up and act like she's a former girlfriend of the guy on the night he's going to propose. Yeah, you've already seen this isn't going to go well, right? So she comes up in this skimpy little cocktail dress and gives him this big hug. Oh, how are you doing? Haven't seen you in a long time. And he says, well, I want to introduce you to my girlfriend. And this actress takes some water and throws it in his face. And he leaves supposedly to get dried off. The security guards come and take this girl out. And it's all a set-up deal. And he's supposed to go get dried off. What he's really doing is getting dressed in a tuxedo so he can propose to her. And this woman, who is going to be proposed to, she goes into fits. I mean, she's crying and screaming, and I can't believe it. if this is some kind of a joke, it's not funny. And so they have to send a producer in to try to calm this person down, to calm this woman down. I think it's an amazing thing. Because if he had not assured her, the whole thing would have fallen apart. As it, as it turned out, the man proposed And get this, not only did he propose, but when she said yes, he had arranged for the wedding to take place that moment. They showed up with a wedding dress with her parents and friends and a minister. Well, I don't know necessarily a minister because I heard the ceremony. But anyway, she's married. (laughs) You ever need to be reassured about something? The Lord says you need to be reassured many times about who I am. And God's reassurance is drastically different. Look at what it says in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, it says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. God says, I want to assure you, first of all, of who I am. I want to assure you of my love, my grace, my mercy, and my power. We've been singing about that all morning long, about God's power, who he is. And God says, I want to assure you, but it's not going to be the same way that they did with the flash mob. It's going to be something totally different. Uh, Look at Isaiah chapter 48. We're going to ask this question. How am I reminded? How am I reminded? Look at what it says. How am I reminded of God's assurances? Isaiah chapter 48, verses 1 through 8. Listen to this, O house of Jacob. You who are called by the name of Israel and come from the line of Judah... You who take oaths in the name of the Lord and invoke the God of Israel but look at this next phrase but not in truth or righteousness you invoke the name of God but you're not really doing it you're you're hypocrites is what it's saying look at verse 2 you who call yourself citizens of the holy city and rely on the God of Israel the Lord Almighty is his name i foretold the former things long ago My mouth announced them, and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. He's saying, don't you remember what I did before? For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Is this a nice thing that God's saying to us? Have you ever heard the term stiff-necked? Guess where we get that? Here. Have you ever heard hard-headed? Your forehead of bronze? That's not a nice thing. Now, mine shines like it's made of bronze, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about hard-headed people that won't listen, that will not bend their neck. Look at verse 5. Therefore, I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you, so that you could not say my idols did them, my wooden image and metal God ordained them. You've heard these things. Look at them all. Will you not admit them? From now on, I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you. They are created now, and not long ago you have, you have not heard of them before today. So you cannot say, yes, I knew of them. You have neither heard nor understood. From of old, your ear has not been opened. Well, do I know how treacherous you are? You were called a rebel from birth. This is not a really reassuring passage, and you're saying, how in the world is God assuring us? How is he reassuring us of this? Three ways that God reassures us of who he is. Number one, the present reassures us or assures us of God's mercy. The present, assure, the present time assures us that God is merciful. Did you notice he says that they are not doing it in truth? Have you ever known anyone who called himself a Christian and then didn't live like a Christian? Yeah, Absolutely look in the mirror sometime. Sometimes we call ourselves Christians and then what do we do? We worry, we fret, we, we get angry, we lust, we lie. There's so many things that come up in our life and the Lord says, I see who you really are. And he's talking to Israel, but he could be talking to the church just as well. It's painful. It's so much like us. Who are the stiff-necked and who are the hard-headed? Raise your hand, would you? Everybody raise your hand. Okay, thank you for admitting that. We are the stiff-necked. We are the hard-headed. God says, I'm trying to turn your head so you look a different direction, and you won't do it. I'm trying to talk to you, and it's like bouncing something off of a chrome off off of of a bronze head. We stubbornly refuse to allow God to impact us right now. A pastor by the name of Raymond Ortland was writing on this passage, and I love what he says. The Jewish exiles really were God's people. Did you get that? the Jews really are God's chosen people Israel is still God's chosen people if you hear somebody today teaching that God's not gonna do anything more with Israel then have them go read Isaiah one more time okay the Jewish exiles really were God's people they had a lot going for them as Isaiah says here but something was wrong their profession of faith was not in truth or right they weren't really listening to God not with a follow-through that reaches out for the implications of the gospel. They were, in the true sense of the word, nominal. Nominal means ineffective. They were not open to the surprising ways of God. They were limiting him to the narrowness of their idols. What if I substituted a word? What if, they, what if I would say they were limiting him to the narrowness of their credit cards? Their the credit cards were predictable. Their credit cards were locked into the annual cycle of seasons, and were a part of nature. What if I just put that in there instead of idle? That changes things just a little bit, doesn't it? But the transcendent Creator is free to do whatever He pleases. Is that true? Is God free to do whatever He pleases? I, I ran into a verse. Psalm one fifteen three says, "Our God is in heaven; He does whatever pleases Him." Is God free to do whatever pleases Him? Can God do evil? No, God cannot do evil. So if God does whatever pleases him, is that a good thing? Yes, because he does the right thing every time. The Creator is free to do whatever he pleases. He never acts out of character, but neither is he controllable. That means that true faith is always a cutting edge adventure. Is that true? Is our faith a cutting edge adventure? Or for most Christians, is our faith something that we plod through and we never see God work in it? We've been given a challenge this morning we've been given a challenge to see if God would provide money that we don't have so we could give it back to him. And you say, well, I'm, you know, I just don't think I'm going to pray about that because I don't have the $500. There will be people who are listening to my voice today that will not ever even pray about whether God would have you to do that. And you say, well, I'm just a guest here today. I don't have to do that. No, you don't. But what if God did? What if God would miraculously give 100 families in this church, $500 over and above what you'd normally give to the church? What if he would do that and it would come in? Would that be an amazing thing? And wouldn't the present show us again that God is merciful? You see, we don't think we need mercy. Israel didn't think they needed mercy. Uh, They were God's chosen people. We're Christians. We don't need mercy. Israel did not get what they deserved. What is mercy? What's mercy? Have you ever played the game mercy? I've done this before. I, I asked one of the teenagers come up. I think it was uh, James last time that did that, that played mercy with me, where you do the fingers and you play mercy. You know what I'm talking about? Michael, come here, Michael. <clears throat> come help me out, buddy. You know what mercy is, right? You put, you put your hand up like this. You know, no, not like, here, high five me, bud. Okay, you do like this, and you just keep pressing like this. And what do you say, Michael? Mercy. There you go, that's it, mercy. (laughs) That's mercy. He was acting, I wasn't even pushing hard. I play the guitar, I have strong fingers, what can I say? You play mercy, and you say, don't do that anymore, because that hurts. We ask for mercy, we don't get what we really deserve. God doesn't give us what we deserve because we all deserve to be separated from him forever. He didn't do that for Israel, and he doesn't do that today. And God does not give up on us when we disobey him. Did you notice it says that they did not do it in truth or righteousness, and God still says, you're still my people called by my name. That ought to completely blow us away, that every day we wake up, even when we've been disobedient, God still shows us love and grace and mercy. The present, every day when we wake up, it ought to prove God's mercy again. Uh, and we ought to come with, with uh, Paul in Romans, Romans 11. says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. In his mercy, God's still involved in our lives. When we don't offer our lives to him, he still loves us. He's not defeated. When we don't do what he asks us to do, he's still not defeated. And that's our assurance of God's mercy. God still answers prayers. Do you understand that God is still actively involved in our life, even when he shouldn't be? That proves, that assures us of God's mercy. Number two, the past assures me of God's grace. Not only the mercy, the things that we, we, we don't get what we deserve, but we get what we never earned. That's grace. Grace. It's God's unmerited favor. Grace is God giving us something that we could never get on our own, that we don't deserve. He doesn't give us the negative. He gives us the positive. That's the mercy and grace. And God faithfully keeps his promises. Israel's past fulfill God's prophecies. They show God's grace. Time after time after time, God showed his Grace to Israel. He gave them something they didn't deserve. Hebrews twelve. Uh, Hebrews twelve starts out talking. Uh, excuse me. Hebrews chapter one talks about this as it starts the book. It says, "In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He spoke to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. In the past, God spoke through His prophets to show the grace that Israel got." Let me ask you a question, was Jesus born a Jew because Israel was so obedient? Was Jesus born a Jew because of all the good things that Israel had done when God said you're my chosen people? What happened to them? They were in captivity. The northern part and the southern part split. The northern part was was taken over by Assyria, then the southern part was taken over by Babylon. They went into 70 years captivity, and even when they came back, they had one group after another that was over them. They never really had the freedom that they wanted to have so desperately a nation because they continued to be disobedient to God, and God showed them grace. And you say, well, pastor, that's great about Israel, but what about us today that really doesn't apply. Have you ever heard this? Christianity can't possibly be true because a lot of people who go to your church, they are sinners just like everybody else. Any ever heard anything like that? Maybe not this church. Okay, other churches. Yeah. They're sinners in other churches not here. No. That's that's absolutely erroneous. Christianity can't possibly be true because the people who go to church are sinners just like everyone else. Is that a true statement? Well, the last half of it's true. Guess what? I'm a sinner. You know, in AA, they always say that you're supposed to come in and you're supposed to admit your fault so that you can, you know, you would come in, you'd say your name, and I'm an addict or I'm a, you know, I'm an alcoholic or whatever. In church, I think what we ought to do in the front door when you come in, you ought to say your name. Hey, my name is George Knight, and I'm a sinner. Hi, George. Hey. It's what they do. I like it. I like it. I'm going to say it again. I want you to all say that. My name is George Knight. I'm a sinner. Okay, now we're going to to turn it around. I want you to say, my name is, put your name in there, and say, I'm a sinner. My name is? My name. Hi, guys. That's who we are. And God in the past, has shown grace to us that we never could fathom. And the Lord says, I want to come in and do something. And listen, Christians do cast doubt on God's ability to change lives. Remember Nathan coming to David after David sinned with Bathsheba? It says in 2 Samuel 12, 4 that by Nathan said to David, by doing this, you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. But I want to turn that little phrase around. Christianity can't possibly be true because there are a bunch of sinners who go to that church. And I think the Bible, from God's perspective, he says, Christianity has to be true because a bunch of sinners go to that church. Christianity absolutely has to be true because that church is full of sinners. What do you mean? I want to go back to Ray Ortland one more time. I think he just he said it so much better than I could. The grace of God is not an afterthought. His grace is not plan B in view of our failures. Grace is the nature of God. Now, let me ask you a question. Does it seem obvious to us that God would judge sinners? Does that seem obvious that God would judge sinners? Say yes or no? Absolutely. Does it seem obvious that God would welcome sinners into the fiery love of the Trinitarian Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Does that seem obvious that God would do that? No. Why would God welcome sinners into the only perfect place in the universe, into the Trinity? I think that's breathtaking. I don't think it's obvious at all. And yet we assume that it's obvious and it really isn't. The very fact that God would love us as sinners proves his grace. God is out to to prove that he is God, not by nuking us, but by embracing us forever. I love that. That's his glory. If you're in Christ, whatever Christ is doing now, right now, if you're in Christ, whatever God is doing in your life right now is not an experiment that he might abandon if he gets fed up with you. You need to know that God would would have to stop being God before he'd quit on you. Why is God devoted to you? It's not because you risk being a failure. You already are a failure. So am I. It's because God will never let his purpose fail. The defeat of grace to sinners would be the defeat of the very nature of God. Every day when we look at the past, it ought to assure us of God's grace. And here's the third thing. The future assures us of God's power. The present assures us of God's mercy. The past assures us of God's grace. And the future assures us of God's power. In verse 6, he says, I will tell you of new things. He said in the past, suddenly this came, and you remember we talked about in 701, there was this, Assyria came, and it looked like they were going to overtake, uh, overtake Jerusalem, and God defeated the Assyrian army. The hundreds, uh, literally thousands of people died overnight because God protected his city. In 586, Babylon overtakes and, and just swarms over the southern kingdom and takes them. In 539, God destroys Babylon with another empire because he wanted his people to come back like we talked about last week. So the present and the past, but also the future, the new things. I will tell you new things. God's going to accomplish things in the future in ways we can't imagine. Does God always do what we expect Has God always done what you expected him to do? No, absolutely not. Uh, and, I, and I'm just reminded again. Think about in the past. Did God always do the, what we expect? We were in, in Israel, and we saw some of the city walls. We saw the city walls in Dan. And I reached up. I can reach about eight feet tall, and, and four or five feet above me, in the lowest place was the city wall, wide enough you could get two chariots running around it. And that's just what's left. The city walls around Jericho were 40 feet tall. We're told, and they could have chariot races around the top of the chariot, uh, atop of these 40-foot walls. And the way they built walls, they were not. perfectly vertical they were wider at the base and they sloped into the top so can you imagine how massive these walls were and all of israel's marching around and can you imagine every day they're told hey this is what joshua says get up and we're going to walk around the city and if you're in israel what are you saying why and they walk around the city and then on the seventh day what does he say We're going to keep doing it. Don't stop. Keep keep going. And then after they've done it six times, what do they do? They blow the ram's horn, and the walls fall down. Did, Did anybody expect that? Not even Israel expected that. Does God always do what we expect him to do? Why did Jesus walk on the water? I mean, what in the world, of all the things... Jesus didn't have to walk on the water to get from one place to the other. All all Jesus needed to do, I mean, God, he is God. He didn't have to walk on the water. Why did Jesus walk on the water? Because the disciples needed to see him walk on the water? Maybe, I don't know, but did anybody expect it? They saw him walking on the water and they thought, it's a ghost. They never expected it. In spite of the fact that Jesus told them four different times, they did not expect him to rise from the dead. He surprises us because we can't be trusted with full disclosure. If God tells us everything in advance, we can't handle it. Have you ever known somebody that couldn't keep a secret? Yeah. You ever known somebody like that? You can't, you can't trust them so you don't tell them the secret? My Aunt Gladys. Everybody's got an Aunt Gladys. It may not, her, name may, her name may not be Gladys, but you've got somebody in the family you can't trust. When my father was a pastor in Kansas City, uh, he and, and my mother were having their 25th anniversary, and Aunt Gladys was there. And somebody in the church made the mistake of telling my Aunt Gladys that they had a secret, this top secret thing that they'd been planning for months. They were going to surprise them with a 25th anniversary party after Sunday night. They had silverware. They had all this stuff set up. It was fully catered. It was this huge deal. And they had kept it a secret for three months to make these plans. And they told my aunt Gladys, because they thought she might be going home, and they thought she might want to stay just an extra day or two. And as soon as Gladys heard it, I'll never forget. she comes running into my mother and she says, "Now, Judy, don't tell anybody else, but they've got a secret plan for you." I thought I was going to see deacons beat and my aunt Gladys. I was kind of, "go for it." If God told us everything in advance. We'd stop leaning on him moment by moment. The future proves, it assures us of God's power. In Job chapter 9, verse 4, look at this verse, just a little verse. His wisdom, Job is speaking. He's talking about God. God's wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? You know what's so surprising about that verse? What's Job look like at that point? He's lost 10 children. He's lost all of his, his income because all of his animals have been killed, destroyed, or stolen. He's lost his health. He's, he's scraping his body because he's got huge boils breaking out. So he's taking pots and scraping the boils because they hurt so bad. He's thinking, if I can just break them, maybe I can get some relief. I don't know if you've ever had one blister that you broke and you understand, and it was all over his body. And what does Job say? Job says, listen, though he curse me, I will love him. Though he slay me, I'll praise him. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Job, when he is in the bottom of the pit, when nothing else, it seems, could, could be piled on top of him, Job says, we serve an awesome God. God tells us enough in advance to trust him, but he does not tell us so much that we can ignore him. That's how I'm reminded of God's assurances. How am I refined by God's assurances? That's the second question. Go back to Isaiah chapter 48, verses 9 through 11. Then we're going to look at just a few verses in chapter 49. 48, verses 9 through 11. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you so as not to cut you off. Did you get that? God says, do you not understand? You think that it's tough now. What if I allowed my wrath to roll over on you? Verse 10. See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Look at chapter 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. In other words, he's going to be powerful. The words are going to be as sharp as a sword, and he's going to be as effective as an arrow in a quiver. Verse 3, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored to no purpose. I've spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I, I want you to stop there for just a second. I want you to think about what that just says. God still has a plan to bring Israel back, to bring Jacob back. And look at the next line. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Isaiah chapter 49 is actually, uh, along with chapter 42, is a picture of Messiah. Messiah. But it's a dual reference. There's a picture of Messiah, and it's also a picture of what Messiah's followers are supposed to do. It's a picture of Jesus Christ, but it's also, it tells us what we're supposed to do. And we're to be refined by God's assurances. Two two things. Number one, how am I transformed by God's character? God's character should refine us. He says, for my own sake, for my name's sake, God's name is all about who he is. It depicts God's character. We did a study in the names of God from September through December of 2008. We called it the strong tower. If you'd like those CDs, you can get those. You can go out uh, to the, to the counter on the left and you can ask about that. It was about 12 messages on this, the names of God, the strong tower, but every name of God depicts God's character. And God says, it's all about my character. And God says, I'm going to refine you. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to, to shape you the way you need to be shaped. And when God begins to assure us of who he is, it should shape us. It should change us. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We, uh, Paul, in the book of Romans, has spent 11 chapters talking about what our relationship is with the Lord. And then chapter 12, it says, Therefore, because of all the things that have happened in Romans 1 through 11, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing and perfect will. God says, I want you to be transformed by who I am, by the assurance of who I am. It happened in the New Testament. When Jesus, when they caught a glimpse of who Jesus really was, it transformed the way they lived. Remember Peter? Peter is there, and and the Lord is dealing with Peter, and, and they've been out on the boat, and Peter's fished all night, and he hasn't caught anything. And the Lord asks Peter if he can use the boat, and, and he uses that as a, a pulpit uh, there by the Sea of Galilee, and he speaks to the people, and afterwards he says, you know what, Peter, you went all night, you didn't catch anything. Why don't we go out and throw out the net? And Peter says, well, Lord, you're not really a fisherman. Lord, you really don't know what you're talking about. We, you know, we've fished all night. That's the best time for catching fish. And Lord, we didn't get anything, and we're in the wrong place the wrong time. But because you, want, because you say that, just because you want me to do it, I'll do it, Lord. And you remember what happens? The boat almost capsizes with all the fish that they bring in. And how does Peter respond in Luke? What does does it say? When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Lord, I had no idea. When he saw the power, the character, the person of God... In Jesus Christ he realized just like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6 he said Lord I'm sinful I don't even need to be in your presence I'm transformed by God's character when I begin to glimpse it and it changes me forever and number two I'm how am I motivated by God's commission how am I motivated by God's commission In, in Verse 17 of chapter 48 says, this is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. He motivates us. He he trains us. He teaches us. He guides us. He says, I'm the shepherd and my sheep follow me. And he says to the Messiah, he says, Messiah is going to be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus came to bring the message, the good message, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. We are are part of the church because Jesus became the light to the Gentiles. But are we supposed to do the same thing? Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says, let your light shine before men. Jesus is speaking on the Sermon on the Mount to us. And he says, we're supposed to be light. Isaiah had this vision of God, Isaiah 6, 8. Look at what it says. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah responded, Here am I, send me. That's God's commission. God says, I want you to go. And and Isaiah said, Okay, I'll go. Go where? Do what? Isaiah, where was he going to go? He was in Israel. What was he going to do? He was just going to deliver God's message to the people that he was supposed to deliver. I think we get it all wrong. We think our commission is God's going to call us to go to Africa. God's going to call us to go to Laos. or to He's going to call us to go someplace that we know there's going to be really yucky food. He's going to call me someplace where the temperature is really hot or it's really cold. And in fact, if I pray, God, I'll go anywhere except Alaska, that's where we're going to end up is Alaska. That's the way God's going to do it. Is that the way God wants to do it? We always look at the New Testament because we look at the New Testament commission. Matthew twenty nineteen twenty says, Make disciples, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 8 says, You're going to receive power. And when you do that, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We know those commissions. But the commission was there long before the New Testament. In Micah chapter six, verses six through eight. Micah comes before the Lord and, and, and he says, uh, in Micah 6, 6, Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Will he be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for, for my transgression? Micah comes to the Lord and says, Lord, what do you require? What do you want me to do? And he says, do you want me to bring thousands of lambs? We looked at what happened when Solomon did that. God never asked us to bring thousands of lambs. Lord, do you want rivers of oil? You know, the oil was this this picture of the goodness of God. The oil was a picture of God's goodness to us and the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Is that what we're supposed to do? Micah says, do you want me to offer my firstborn? What do you want from me, God? Micah says, do you want me to be religious? The Lord says, no, it's not about being religious. I want you to have a relationship. Micah six eight says, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You know what God wants us to do? He wants us to... to to be like him. He wants us to be just. He wants us to be merciful. And we can't do that on our own. And so he's provided the way with a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to have the justice that only I can provide and mercy only I can provide. And then he asks us to do one other thing, to walk humbly with him the truth is, we want something totally different. We want Aladdin. I have grandchildren. How many of you have grandchildren? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have ever watched Aladdin with your grandchildren? Okay. A lot of you have. Aladdin, you know, the cartoon, the Disney cartoon, Aladdin, or maybe you've watched it on your own. If you have, that's, that's a whole different thing. I'll do counseling and I'll talk to you later. The movie Aladdin, Aladdin is this beggar, he can't afford food and so this beggar comes and, and he's enthralled by this princess and she's bored with the court life of being a princess and so you've got this bored princess and this beggar boy that get together and one night they ride on the magic carpet, you remember that magic carpet ride? They get on there and they get and they go and, and it's this wonderful thing and they see all the beauty of the kingdom and they're whisked away and they, and it's magical and it's beautiful and it's spectacular and it's wonderful, and we think that should be the Christian life. If I could just get on this magic carpet, and I could go, woo all over Reading, and they could tell them about Jesus Christ. The Lord says, I don't want you on a magic carpet. I want you to get up for me tomorrow and walk humbly with me so that other people will say, what gives you the peace and the mercy and the grace and the power? And you can introduce them to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Father, thank you for all of the assurances. Every day when we wake up thinking about what we deserve and what we don't get, thank you for your mercy. Looking at the past and seeing all of the grace that you've given us, the the fact that we were able to hear the gospel, to respond to it, all of the grace every day that you pour down on us. And Father, as we look to the future, we see that only you can do what we need you to do. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And you don't reveal it because we couldn't handle it. You don't reveal it because we probably are not trustworthy enough. Forgive us, Father, for missing your assurances, but more than anything, forgive us for not understanding the character of who you are what you want to do in us and through us. Thank you for the assurance that we have that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thank you for the assurance that we have in the New Testament that as many as believed in him, he gave the power to become the children of God. Thank you, Father, for the assurance that we have that grace always wins. We pray this in Jesus' precious name, amen.